Welcome to the Global Investment Leaders Podcast. Welcome to Global Investment Leaders. I'm Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont. Today, I'm joined by Heather Brilliant, CEO and President of Diamond Hill in Columbus, Ohio. Heather, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Chaz. Your background, Heather, is really striking in that there are not that many folks in our business that have had a U.S. investment management career and then moved to Australia and had a career there and then come back to the U.S. I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of the origins of your career and kind of how you ended up where you are today and kind of what were the kind of the key issues or aspirations that led you to where you are. Sure. Well, uh, when I was in college, I did not know a lot about the investment management industry. So I was not one of those people reading Buffett at the age of 16 and dying to become an investor. Although my grandma was very involved in investing um, for a number of different reasons. So I did learn a little bit about it from her. Uh, I went to college and I studied abroad and I thought, I want my career to have a really global feel to it. And the studying abroad just gave me the bug to move overseas And it took me a number of years of my career for an opportunity to arise to do that. But essentially, that's kind of been a theme running through it, where I originally started out um, analyzing companies at Bank of America. And the reason for leaving to go to the buy side was more to get international exposure than it was to, um, to actually become an investment analyst. But I turned out I loved being an investment analyst. And so I spent about a decade doing that before I turned to Uh, more leadership and um, organizationally oriented roles. And after I did that, um, I spent a number of years running the equity research team at Morningstar before the opportunity came up to run their business in Australia, New Zealand. And I happily took it and moved over to Australia and had a great experience living over there. Well, I thought that that was remarkable, um, both that you had been CEO of First State And that then there was an opportunity to come back and run Diamond Hill, which was a very different business. And maybe talk for a little bit about just the transition from Australia to a U.S. investment business, which clearly you'd had background in. But still, the transition from First State to Diamond Hill was was somewhat different. Um, So one of the greatest opportunities in my career um, that came from working both at Morningstar and at First State, which is an Australian investment manager now now called First Centier, the opportunity to work for a global business. And I think that just really helped me see from both of those perspectives that um, everyone needs to be able to work with colleagues wherever they may be based and on different time zones and um, with different cultural considerations. Um, But when I was working at uh, Morningstar in Australia, I came across the opportunity to go to First State. And in fact, I when I started working at First State, an Australian company, I immediately was moved to the US to run their business in the Americas. And so I did that for a couple of years from New York before coming across the opportunity at Diamond Hill. And essentially, um, there's so many things that really intrigued me about Diamond Hill, but the a couple of the, the highlights that really stand out, first of all, are that the investment philosophy at Diamond Hill was very much aligned with how I think about investing. This idea of intrinsic value, a long-term perspective, really thinking like an owner, but also really valuing active management and having actively managed concentrated portfolios all really resonated with me. 
And then second, I'd say the opportunity to um, work with a great group of people. And, you know, Diamond Hills had a really interesting history over the last 20, 22 years or so um, that has resulted in this amazing group of investors and, and professionals on the distribution side across all of the operational parts of the business that just really give it a, a culture and an opportunity that I was excited to be part of. And the third thing that's kind of unusual about Diamond Hill is that we are a publicly traded company. And that is very unusual in the investment management industry. There's really only a handful. And it's even more unusual at our size, where we manage about 30 billion in assets. And um, it's, it's really just an accident of our history. Diamond Hill has been public since the day it was founded. And it uh, is not something that has um, ever really been a problem for the company because we don't have quarterly earnings calls and we really try to maintain a long-term mindset in how we run the business. So even though we do have quarterly accountability and we of course publish our results every quarter, um, we try to stay away from fo overly focusing on any particular quarterly metrics and really think about not even annual, but multi-year metrics when we're running our business. And I think that's been a hallmark of the company for a long time, even before you got there. And I appreciate Absolutely. That. I do want to go back, though, for a second to just some basic differences between the Australian investment management industry and the U.S. investment industry. One of the things that kind of stuck out to me when we were raising private equity funds and we had a number of superannuation funds as LPs in the early 2000s was that the Australian institutional investor naturally thought globally, given the size of the country and the markets. And so the foreign content and allocation principles were just right off the bat, very different. And it was totally normal for a pack of 20 to 30 senior investment professionals to leave Australia and come to the US and do a massive tour for six weeks, visiting upwards of a hundred companies traditional and alternative investment management firms over a dozen cities or more. I mean, I was amazed when I first saw that effort in motion as I became more acquainted with some of the superannuation funds that invested in us. And that to me was kind of one of the first differences is just the willingness to spend so much time abroad and to put a lot of groupthink. I mean, I noticed that a number of CEOs and CIOs and senior investment folk would travel together, those of different companies, sharing ideas, comparing perspectives. I don't think that's something that's typically been done in the US and it would all be seen as, why would I wanna really share ideas with my uh, competition? Maybe talk for a second about that and any other primary difference you, you lived while working there versus working here. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that I think there is a really, interesting global perspective in Australia. Although despite, despite that, there is still a home market bias there as well, as you see in pretty much every country where investors are overweight their home markets um, relative to you know, what any kind of global diversified strategy might suggest. Um, that being said, I, I think the investment industry in Australia is very focused on looking at um, how things are done around the world and what can be learned from the US or from other markets and really bringing back best practices to Australia. 
And I think they've done that in a really great way because they're very selective about it, right? They don't bring back everything the U.S. does. They just bring back the things that they think can really improve how Australia thinks about investment management. And um, one area that I think is really worth highlighting is that Australia was very much ahead of its time in establishing the superannuation system at all. And so the idea that there's a, you know, a government-sponsored plan that is essentially a defined contribution plan for every employee um, of any company in Australia, and that it's mandatory, um, there's, you know, mandatory contributions from the employee and the employer that result in um, really one of the largest pension systems in the world, certainly on a per capita basis. And I just think that's put Australia in a really strong position relative to almost any other country in the world in terms of saving for retirement and really building those pension assets. And it's been an exemplary system. And the rate of growth, as I think we've talked about in the past, has been fueled not only by market appreciation, but by contribution. Absolutely. And that's a, that is a, just a huge differentiator relative to almost every other country in the world. Let's move on to Diamond Hill and just give us a sense of Diamond Hill today and what your near-term strategies or aspirations are for the business. So we talked a little bit about what drew me to Diamond Hill and what I think is really interesting about the company, but a couple of the things we didn't talk about yet that I think are worth mentioning are that Diamond Hill is very committed to capacity discipline. And this really sets us apart in an industry where the more assets you manage, the more scale you have. And for us, we really, we think of scale very differently than I think most of the industry does. And ultimately, it's our ability to outperform that helps us attract and retain our clients. And that relationship with clients and being able to deliver performance for them is absolutely critical and foundational to who we are. And so because of that, we close our strategies when they reach what we believe is a comfortable level of capacity for us to be able to maintain that outperformance. And as an example of that, earlier in 2021, we soft closed our large cap strategy. And you know we do that at much lower asset levels than what, what you see competitors doing. So I do think that's really important. Yeah. What, what, I would, what I would add to that is that I don't see that many competitors closing large cap strategies generally. Absolutely. Your perspective is shared by a number of institutional investors and consultants. And Rosemont has always been very capacity minded. So it's actually good to hear that. But look, in the context of a $30 billion U.S. equity-oriented company, it's a meaningfully sized boutique. It's not as if you are a several billion dollar, you know, we're still on the edge of attractive compensation and valuation measures for our owners. You're right. past that. It's clearly an attractive, profitable, successful business. It's just that you're not driven by the same size and scale pursuit that many of your larger competitors are. Exactly. And we just, we put different qualities or requirements as our primary considerations. So we always put client interest first, and that's not something that is easy to say as a publicly traded company, because we have to take a very long-term perspective in how we run our business. And so I feel very strongly, and it's been a part of Diamond Hill's history, that focusing on clients is the best way to deliver for shareholders in the long run. And so that is something that I think is, is very different for us than, you know, what we see from certainly other publicly traded companies. And, you know, along the lines of focusing on, on putting client interests first, every firm in our industry claims to put client interests first. But what we do to really try to put some teeth behind that is to measure our portfolio managers based on 
five-year performance. We do not consider shorter time periods when we're looking at how we evaluate RPMs. And we also have a number of other kind of ownership practices where our portfolio managers and our employee base at large are invested in our strategies right along with our clients. And so we are clients and we understand the client experience from that perspective. And then also as a small boutique, we can have a, a higher level of touch with our clients where we have the opportunity to be able to um, really provide whatever service is needed. So, you know, you can, you can invest in our strategies as a mutual fund, but, you know, we got a request for a CIT. So we launched a CIT and we get requests for uh, separately managed accounts and we can do that too. Um, you know, we, we have lots of different ways of kind of partnering with our clients and we have found that to be one of the things that our clients continue to tell us is really differentiates us in the industry. Well, I think what's interesting about what you just said is that everything that you've just referred to really speaks to alignment. Alignment of Diamond Hill to client, alignment of Diamond Hill with its employees, uh, its corporate mission, what you say on the inside versus what you how you market on the outside. It seems to be a very aligned culture, which is not at all true for firms of your size and bigger, especially those who are corporately owned and who have other agendas, and especially those that are publicly traded, and as you know, have quarterly expectations. And you really made a very conscientious effort to get away from all that. We really have. And that alignment is really important to us. And I mean, one of the things um, you asked me earlier about kind of what we're thinking about in terms of our strategy and our strategic plans going forward. And um, we do think about ourselves as an aligned boutique, aligned with our clients, which we just discussed, but also um, aligned in the sense that we believe there are certain ways of investing or truths about investing that we hold true, such as um, really running active, actively managed concentrated portfolios, having a long-term perspective, ensuring there's valuation discipline or intrinsic value for, um, you know, on the equity side. Uh, that really carries through everything we do. And so some of these principles are just so fundamental that our goal is to make sure that any investment team that is part of Diamond Hill always is able to and is excited about upholding or adhering to those principles. And then within that, I'd say we, we really we're excited about what we have going on on the equity side. We've got a number of different strategies that still have quite a bit of capacity we have relatively recently launched an international strategy that is about to hit its five-year track record at the end of this year. And it's very strong first five years. So we're really excited about the potential for that as well. We've been growing a fixed income business. And right now it's primarily focused on a core strategy and a short duration securitized strategy. And um, the expertise of that team is really well regarded in the industry. And it's, it's been something our clients have been super interested in um, learning more about and working with us on. So we're, we're really excited about what we have to look forward to over the next several years as well. I'm going to keep an eye on the growth of all of these strategies and on your capacity constraints. Well, we do publicly state in advance the capacity constraints for all of our strategies. So it's no secret what we believe our capacity is and where we would close each strategy. So happy to happy to talk about that anytime. And you've honored that. It's not just marketing. So I've, I've seen it. Exactly. The other thing that I want to talk about that I think differentiates you, I, I know differentiates you, and it's not something that you probably for much of your career thought was a differentiable factor. And that is being a woman CEO in the investment management business. 
And I know you grew up with some brothers, but as we've talked about this over time, Heather, I think your appreciation for the differences and the challenges of not only being a woman CEO and a leading female in the business and getting others to aspire and potentially lead firms, hold significant and senior roles. Talk to me a little bit about the kind of evolution of that in your mind and how you've seen yourself and whether or not it's all about opportunity, whether it's something more related to a sense of purpose as opposed to just compensation, what would be the key drivers that you think would allow more women to lead and have very senior roles throughout our business, which they clearly still have a long, long way to go? Yes. Well, uh, Chaz, you and I have talked on many occasions about the challenges and I think opportunities of improving diversity in our industry. And for me, you know, the first decade or so of my career, I really didn't notice the lack of diversity in our industry, which is kind of sad when you think about it. But, you know, as you mentioned, I grew up with two brothers. Um, I was I was on the debate team, which is a very historically male dominated activity. And, you know, so I, I go into the investment industry and and there were mostly men and it didn't even occur to me to notice that or really try to, to change it in any way. And then probably about 15 years ago, I thought, you know, there's probably a reason or at least maybe multiple reasons why there are not more women and um, really just more diversity in general in our industry. And so I started doing a lot more research on it and talking to people about it. And I came across this author, Scott Page, who uh, wrote a couple of books on the benefits of cognitively diverse teams, which really just means people who, who come at problem solving from different perspectives. And it really caused me to realize that our industry is missing out by not having more diversity. And so I've really, I've become an advocate for trying to figure out why aren't there more women in the industry? What can we do to be an attractive career option for, for women and for people of color as they're going into their careers? And so I do think there's a couple of things, you know, you touched on purpose. I think our industry has a tremendous delivery of purpose, meaning we do, we help people have better retirements. We help families ensure they have enough saved for college and that they've been able to, you know, invest their money wisely so that it goes further for them over the course of their lifetimes. But that isn't what we always talk about as an industry. You know, there's, we are constantly surrounded by money and we end up talking a lot about money and returns and benchmarks and outperformance. And I think that can be a little alienating. And so I, I don't know if that is, you know, for sure what is driving people away from our industry, but I do know that connecting to a sense of purpose is really important. And I think it's increasingly important as we move into the millennial generation and younger where, you know, purpose is the number one thing that's being talked about as motivating. So, um, so I do think that is a real opportunity. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more, especially about the up and coming millennial and Gen Z folk who are seemingly led by impact and purpose and what role they can play to be really meaningful, both to their firms and to themselves personally, and not necessarily at the expense of compensation, but just as a really important attribute of how they want to live their lives. That was not at all the case when I was young uh, and coming into the business, and I don't think it was for you either, but it can go, do you think that that can go a little bit the other way? Because I've heard from some of our investments and friends in the business that when they're interviewing young analysts and marketing folk and technology people and, and folks in their 20s and 30s, 
that some of the first questions are, what's your work from home policy? Mm. <laughs> or how is it that I'm going to have impact or be a meaningful part of this group? This could be their first or second job. And I wonder whether or not you would find that to be a little bit off-putting as an employer. So I think, I do think that an element of roll up your sleeves and do what needs to be done in order to figure out your career path um, has to be present. And so, you know, that's certainly something that in people we hire, that's got to be part of it. It can't just be, how am I going to become the next CEO? And, you know, there has to be some like, well, let's, how about you first start out on the RFP team? We'll help figure out, you know, how you can have some scope beyond that. But, you know, everybody has to start somewhere. And I, I always am telling people younger in their careers who ask me for advice on this, that the most important thing you can do in your first role or two in your career is to excel at whatever it is you're being asked to do, because, um, you know, your employer will see that you are capable of more and you will get the opportunity to take on more. But if you don't excel at the job in front of you, because you think you are too good for it, or that you should be given some other responsibility to me, that's just, that's just a non-starter. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I do think that there is perhaps a, an increased sense of entitlement with a lot of the workforce in our industry these days, but it's also clearly not just about money. And mm-hmm. if it were really all about money, everybody would work for private equity and hedge funds. <laughs> well, and I do want to go back to the other part of your question, which was about um, working remotely. And that's an area where I think our industry and other industries as well are, are going to have to make some changes. And, you know, I was mentioning earlier about having the experience of working for global businesses. And what that really taught me is that it is possible to build companies and to build effective teams that are not all sitting in the same location. I think it's harder and it takes a tremendous amount of focus and effort. But if you can work for a company where part of your team is in London, part is in Sydney, parts in Chicago, um, and you can make that work, there's really no reason why we can't make remote work function in our industry. For, you know, for us at Diamond Hill, what we're trying to do is figure out, okay, well, we, we know we all really value being in the same place some of the time. How much of the time does that need to be? And how can we kind of define that in a way that people feel, feel comfortable that when they come to the office, they will actually encounter their colleagues, but that they don't have to come in every day because in, you know, investment management, there's a lot of independent work. And so, you know, if you're an analyst and you need a couple of days a week where you're reading 10 Ks and, you know, diving into detailed Excel spreadsheets, there's really no reason why you can't do that elsewhere. No, I really agree. And I was probably of the cohort that said, you really need to be together. And it is true in much larger firms or firms that have a particularly young portion of the workforce and people that are just getting acclimated. How are they going to really get the DNA of the business? How are they going to become part of the culture if they're at home all the time? But the other side of that coin is that smart people and really well-organized businesses are increasingly forced to adapt in this industry. And I think that increasingly some hybrid work environment is going to become more the norm, whether we like it or not. I agree. Um, I do think it's a lot easier to maintain relationships that are already existing if you, you know, if everyone's working from different locations, but I do, I I think we're going to have to figure out how to build cultures remotely too. And I don't think we know how to do that yet, but I think it's it's something we're all going to have to learn. I I couldn't agree with you more. I think that unfortunately the, the whole pandemic and the variants that are coming out of it 
and how our industry is answering that challenge, I'm afraid I think that that challenge continues. That challenge almost starts to become more the norm. And we will adapt. And those folks that don't adapt well will fade away. Yes, I, I think it's, it's the reality we face. Well, Heather, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I hope that uh, Diamond Hill has a very successful 2022 and beyond and look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks, Jazz. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. And it was fun talking.